its origin with what will now be my third video. The first two laid the foundation for how I think about this sector, the ROCE deep dive, and a few weeks back, the ESG 2.0 and energy transition video. This one will go into how I think investors, corporates, and so forth should think about navigating the energy transition. And I wanted to start with the notion that the commodity macro backdrop is one of a super vol environment, which I would differentiate from pure super cycle. I want to get into the reasonings for why I picked that nomenclature, super vol, uh, perhaps in contrast to just pure super cycle. Let's get into the slide deck. So let me start with an explanation for why I think super vol is the better term than super cycle. Uh, both kind of denote a, a bullish backdrop for the coming period, let's just call it the coming decade. But I think super vol is a better mindset for the energy transition era that we're in. And the, the biggest reason is these cross currents of climate policy uh, and what I'm going to call virtue signaling ESG risk. And I, and I really mean ill-advised climate policy. There is some advisable climate policy and there's some ill-advisable climate policy. It's that ill-advisable piece, virtue signaling ESG, that I think are going to be as important to the driver of this cycle as just normal supply demand. And understanding how policy risks can change Without question, politicians react to periods of high prices and the pressures consumers face. And you can get these kind of quick adjustments. And just because you get adjustments doesn't mean you're going to have better policy going forward. So I think this is going to be a feature for the current, current decade. But it is as important as the fundamental drivers of supply demand. And I think it's really important to have that mindset of extreme volatility with the backdrop of a fairly constructive price price environment, but super vol more than super cycle. The, the intention was not to be bearish. I do think some read it that way, that somehow I didn't fully believe in a super cycle. Uh, really, I'm trying to emphasize the volatility point. So if you look at fundamentals, um, every cycle has some similarities and differences. Uh, if you look at demand, I expect demand for oil, I'm gonna, I'm gonna focus more on crude oil here, to grow through 2030. My 2030 demand number is 110 million barrels a day. Now that sounds like a bullish number, but quite frankly, that's not the type of growth rates we had in the 2000s. I'm not assuming the kind of booming global GDP like we once had, and there's clearly some risk of secular stagnation as deglobalization and some of these trends and even some of these climate policies uh, potentially weigh on economic growth. And I think the idea that demand isn't going to peak and that it's going to, or, or plateau for that matter, as some are calling for, that is the bullish demand view I've had. That is not the same thing as sort of China entering the WTO and having a, a major EM boom. A little bit of the same thing on supply. We're in an environment on supply where a lot of, a lot of traditional investors are putting pressure on companies to have better returns. That's all fundamentally driven. I think on the climate and ESG part, it's not just restrictive policies, pipelines being blocked, acreage not being leased, as you hear about, but is as much the mindset that if people are concerned that there might be some year coming up that demands peak. Again, I'm, I'm of the view of 110 million barrels a day in 2030. Other people might be at 105. Some people may be at 102 or 100 or think the peak is going to happen in 2025 and then decline thereafter. It's a debate. Uh, my view is not guaranteed to be right. 
And if you're an investor and you say, you know what, I'm not 100% sure who to believe here. If you're a company and you say, I'm not sure who to believe here, it's going to make you want to invest less. But again, make no mistake, that is a climate and policy driven either interpretation or actual policy. That is different than what we had in the 2000s, where it was very clear the easy oil from the 1970s and 80s boom had sort of evaporated, and we were going to try and find some new basins to drill. It turned out to be shale oil that didn't materialize till the 2010s, but we did deep water West Africa, to deep water uh, Gulf of Mexico. We did oil sands. People considered Russia and Arctic and all sorts of things. McKenzie Delta, for those of you that remember that. Um, we're not looking for those basins this time. Supply may be restricted, it may be slower to grow for both policy concerns, for return on capital concerns, but that is not the same thing as trying to find new basins that are inherently potentially higher cost. And so again, it, we could, if suddenly people felt very relaxed about oil demand, if investors said, hey, the returns are good, we want growth back, it is possible, it is absolutely possible to have a faster supply response, hence super vol more than super cycle. Now, this idea of energy transition, I don't think it's going away. And again, that is why I think it's going to be a multi-year, potentially decade-long period of pretty good commodity price backdrop for the sector. Because the, the, the policy, the goal of certainly the European Union, uh, I would say increasingly the US, Canada, and the Western world, and then to some degree, and we'll see uh, emerging markets, China, et cetera, um, the idea that we're trying to decarbonize and the idea that we're going to have some pretty bad <laughs> climate and energy policies uh, uh, around those goals, um, that's not going away. Uh, even if in the short term, politicians kind of freak out about uh, high oil prices and let's say they take some actions that reverse current restrictions. We know all these issues are going to be here for quite a bit of time. So let me get into the issue of geopolitics again contributes to my notion of supervol more than supercycle. And obviously what's going on in Russia uh, with both Europe on the gas side and then Ukraine with this current situation there um, plays to all elements of this because I, it's important to understand geopolitics and how they've evolved under climate and energy policy and energy transition. We certainly have always had traditional geopolitical risks in the, especially the crude oil business to a lesser degree in, in global gas. And Russia as a major oil producer, uh, even though it seems unlikely that its oil supply is at risk here, there's some tension going on. They are absolutely a major producer. No one has any idea how the situation is really going to play out. And so the idea that there's some geopolitical, traditional geopolitical risk premium in the oil price, that's normal. We've always had that. I think what is new is this idea of self-inflicted geopolitical turmoil. Now, this is more applicable to European natural gas, as an example, when you have prematurely shut down your nuclear plants. And, and perhaps the German people are completely on board with doing that. It's fine. They govern themselves. I have no issues with that. But they've still done it. And they've made themselves exposed to what are, without question, unreliables in terms of power generation, solar and wind. I have no issues at all with solar and wind, but it is clearly not ready for prime time as a base load power generation source. There's some super interesting uses of solar and wind. It is low cost in certain instances, absolutely true. But as 
in all these regions where suddenly renewables take a large portion of the power generation mix and at a, mix and at a time when we've not invested adequately in reliable sources of power, natural gas fired, we're shutting down nuclear. You're getting self-inflicted geopolitical turmoil, which you see with uh, whatever Russia is doing or not doing in terms of gas flows to Europe. And that is going to be a feature of this energy transition era. How are climate policies potentially uh, exacerbating geopolitical turmoil? I want to be very clear here. The issue is with the policymakers. Okay, Other countries are free to do what they want. We can like it as Americans. We can dislike it as Americans or any other nationality. Uh, but when you do not invest in your own sources of power generation or secure sources of uh, feedstock or what have you from geopolitically friendlier countries, you put the onus on yourself to become more dependent, in this case, on Russia. That is self-inflicted. It is a result of bad policy choices, in my opinion. Um, there is certainly nothing about all that's going on with Russia, whether it's the gas situation or whether it's the Ukraine situation, that doesn't scream super vol. I'm not a geopolitical expert. I've studied oil markets for 30 years, so I perhaps have some knowledge. But who knows how this is going to turn out? It seems unlikely today that oil exports from Russia would get disrupted. But it's potentially um, a very high-risk situation. No one knows what is going to happen. It could get resolved quickly. It could drag on for years or anything in between. Super vol. Clearly, there is both significant upside and downside risks depending on how the situation gets resolved. Now, let me talk about some of the crude oil fundamental drivers. And again, why I prefer this language of super vol versus super cycle. And again, bullish over the next 10 years, but vol versus cycle. One of the, I think, key questions is, will we see an economic acceleration for the three to five billion people that are energy poor? Certainly, anyone who is forecasting peak demand or plateau even, within the 25, 20, 2025 to 2030 timeframe, does not believe in the economic potential of these people. And maybe that's accurate from an analytical standpoint. There is absolutely no question all humans uh, deserve abundant, affordable, available, and secure energy. Uh, and the idea that these three to five billion people are going to be driving Teslas with distributed solar is sim simply ridiculous. Uh, it is possible that the economic conditions in these countries don't change for the better. That would be unfortunate, but that's certainly a possibility. I think the more you believe in the ability for three to five billion people who are currently energy poor, and that includes people who are expected to be born in these countries over the next, call it 30 to 50 years, the more you believe in their right, their fundamental right, to affordable, available, abundant, secure energy supply, I think the more structurally bullish you end up being on crude oil demand is something to watch. Um, on the supply side, um, here's where I think there is a lot of room for debate. For how long and for how quickly can Permian Basin, and let's just call it US shale, but really Permian Basin supply grow? I personally end up on the more optimistic side um, from the perspective of supply growth for the Permian. Um, could we have, let's just call it half a million barrels a day of growth um, for many, many years into the future 
at, let's just call it a 60 to $80 oil price. I think you could. If we were still in the drill baby drill mentality of last decade, and we currently have you know 90 to $100 oil, could the premium grow a million barrels a day or higher? I, I don't think there's any evidence that that couldn't happen. Some are saying the inventory is more mature. I don't personally feel that based on um, especially this broader group of Permian majors that you see, which are both traditional majors and some of the larger EMPs that have consolidated positions. I think there actually could be substantial growth for many years, but some people push back on that. And it is absolutely a point of debate. Clearly in an environment where you have higher oil prices for an extended period of time, there is more incentive to try and figure out how to turn tier two and tier three acreage into at least tier one or tier one and a half, and maybe even tier two acreage work. So uh, this is going to be one of the things to watch is sort of, it's not so much just capital discipline per se. It's really just sort of the inherent inventory growth potential and that um, iteration between oil price returns and willingness to grow. Again, I am more of an optimist that we're going to have better supply growth here. Some people push back on that. I think the last area to watch on the fundamental side is the reacceleration of what I would call medium cycle projects. So not exploring and looking for new basins, but the stuff we know we have. That might be Deepwater Gulf, Deepwater West Africa, Canada's oil sands, um, a few other onshore basins around the world, maybe in the Middle East. Uh, Brazil's pre-salt comes to mind. There are a number of known hydrocarbon provinces of which companies are currently spending very little that certainly have the potential to produce more. Now, if you think oil demand is going to peak soon or you're not sure about that uh, and, you know, it's kind of oil prices are up and maybe it's geopolitics and it's temporary. All these are the returns stunk last decade. These are all the reasons for why the ramping capex has been slow and certainly climate oriented people say, you know what, um, maybe the shale can fill in some of the short term gap, but we don't want anything longer term, even the medium cycle projects to come back. I'm not sure that's actually going to be the case. Again, I think the resource exists. I don't think it's like the 2000s where we didn't know where it was or what it was going to cost. On the other hand, both explicit climate and ESG virtue signaling policies, as well as the fear of what those policies mean for demand, could result in the slower ramp that we're having. And that, again, is why I would say super vol more than super cycle. Perhaps on this point, that is more semantics than substance. Um, I think either way, it's going to be a kind of a slow CapEx rebound for, again, especially deep water, oil sands, and so forth. But again, another thing to watch on the fundamental side. The area where I was actually surprised to get some pushback on was this notion of fortress balance sheet. To be clear, there's a lot of you that agree companies should be, especially during these periods of high prices, using excess cash to pay on debt. Yes, everyone wants higher dividends, but strengthen the balance sheet, maybe being net debt free or even possibly more cash than debt. There's a lot of support for that. But there's actually a a non-trivial amount of pushback. And I, I just wanted to talk through it a bit and why I did think this was an important component of my energy transition resilience fr- framework. And at the end of the day, we don't know what corporate capital market access is going to be. Um, you could already see European banks starting to move away from fossil fuels. Maybe they'll come back. I, I, I don't think that's likely, but who knows? Um, does that spread to the U.S. and Canada? Um, how do different regulators or other folks kind of incentivize or disincentivize? There's just a lot of unknown 
in terms of capital market access and the related uncertainty of exit valuations. So I think if you're a short-term institutional investor, and by short-term, I mean someone with a six-month, 12-month, maybe even 24-month time frame, I think it's easier to say, you know what? I'm not worried about that 10-year view of how your company survives or thrives. Um, I want the money back today. Lever up. You've got a 20%, 30% free cash yield. Um, let's make the stock work. And I think that is... Um, a little bit of the disconnect that we see out there. I'm not accusing anyone or everyone that says um, we don't need fortress balance sheets as being short-term investors, but th- there can be a disconnect on the timeframes here. I'm personally in the camp that there's no such thing as too strong of a balance sheet. Again, there can be exceptions um, for small caps. I'll get into that in a future video. There might be some exceptions for certain pockets of your asset, asset uh, EMP assets out there. But as a general rule, I think concerns over exit, concerns over capital market access, we have to take seriously. Um, the issue is, can you live with your assets long term? So if you're just playing for the cycle, that's all these companies ever do, right? That's why we're only 3% of the S&P 500. It's because you've just been cycle place, trying to get away from that, trying to get the framework where we have double digit returns on capital, strong balance sheets. And that while there will always be some volatility, it's a cyclical sector, that's not going away no matter what you think of energy transition. Um, there still might be the need to live with these assets longer than some component of your shareholder base is going to live with them. And that's going to be a tension that's out there. Again, it makes me favor Fortress Balance Sheet. I think the third point is an offensive point where both companies and short-term investors, institutional investors should be aligned, which is if, we, if we're going to have lots of volatility. Um, and some pretty big paradigm shifts. And in an era of transition, I think any price drop is going to feel terminal. Okay, this is it. This is fi- We just finally had our last boom. You hear a lot of that. You know, I'm bullish origin, but it's the last boom. I, I, I don't know how many more booms we're going to have. I do not accept that this is the last boom. Uh, maybe we'll have five more. Maybe this is the last one. We don't know, and that's part of the point. We don't know what new technologies... Lithium-ion batteries, uh, call me a skeptic that that's going to be 100% of our future sales. But what's the time frame realistically for solid-state batteries? What comes after solid-state batteries? Do we ever figure out some cost-economic battery storage to go with our renewables? The, the, you know, hydrogen, um, nuclear fusion, nuclear power, regular nuclear power. What, what is the potential for any of this stuff to ramp, to get policy, to get technology progress? We don't know. But we know we're in energy transition era, and we know there's going to be volatility. And so can your company take advantage of the sharp price drops? It could be to add E&P assets. It could be that clean energy, as maybe we're seeing today, goes out of favor and other opportunities there with technologies you believe in that are consistent with your company. For all these reasons, I think having a fortress balance sheet is very important. Um, We also know there's going to be ongoing policy restrictions. I'm just going to use Canada as the example, if Canada were to remain pipeline bottlenecked, um, do you have solutions infrastructure-wise, downstream-wise, to help take advantage of that? Appalachia Gas, what LNG potential can you bring to the table or not? Anytime you have what I'm going to call, I'm going to use the judgmental term, ill-advised climate policy restrictions, um, you have opportunity as an upstream oil and gas company, potentially as a midstream or downstream oil and gas company. 
And I think how these policies play out, there is a lot of uncertainty. There's going to be a lot of volatility. And as restrictions creep up or fade, what is your ability as a company to take it and as an investor to take advantage of that? I think the last area I want to get to is the topic of ESG, both substantive and virtue signaling ESG. Now, there, I think, is going to be a need to decarbonize. I don't think that's going away. At various times, uh, especially democratically elected governments will face pressure to kind of lessen the burden, or in other times they'll feel more emboldened to uh, increase policy. But either way, um, we know that there's going to be this need to decarbonize, and we don't know what opportunities are going to exist. I think this is what I'm going to call in the substantive bucket. Um, what are the technologies you're going to want to be exposed to, and how do you ensure you're well positioned for that? I think the real trick here, especially if you're an oil and gas producer, is who's going to crack the code on the decarbonized, bar- decarbonized barrel, and I should say, or MCF? Um, I'm going to say that's a scope one, scope two, inclusive of methane type considerations. Others may want to push that a little further. I think a company like Valero Energy, the refiner, has a very interesting strategy to be uh, net zero scope one and two by 2035. I actually need to dig into them in a little more detail, but they have one of the earlier timeframes. I actually think they have one of the more credible plans via renewable diesel and some of the other things that they've demonstrated that they know something about and can generate good returns in. They are seemingly not relying very much on offsets. I, I want to say it's 10% of their target to get to net zero. Um, I, I wouldn't say Valero has, quote, cracked the code. And I don't know if that's a CCUS crack the code option or it could be some other new technology. But somewhere in there, some company's going to figure this out. And I think you get a very high multiple if you can actually do this in an economic way where you then have that right to develop your barrels. You benefit from being a producer able to take advantage of higher price environment with a good balance sheet uh, and selling that that decarbonized barrel. Um, I, I think the last thing to just talk about on ESG is where does virtue signaling ESG, kind of the bad ESG, if you will, where does that run amok? Um, obviously, Europe's a place to watch, but hey, we got plenty of this going on right here in the United States. And for that matter, for those of you that are north of the border in Canada as well, uh, that pre- creates challenges. As we know, it also creates opportunity. Uh, we have 100 million barrels a day of oil demand. That is growing. We have whatever amount of BCF a day of natural gas we use globally, blanking on it here at the top of my head. That is growing at an even faster rate. Um, we have intermittent power generation that clearly is not ready for prime time. And this is going to have to resolve. And so in places where you've seen virtue signaling ESG run amok, uh, I think there's going to be opportunities. I'll end this video on a personal note. Some of you have asked, why as a retired Goldman partner, otherwise writing seriously about the energy transition era, do you have this sort of crazy energy transition playlist that seems to be 1980s heavy metal songs that I guess you liked as a teenager? What, what's up with that? Um, I will say it is my artistic attempt to highlight the ridiculousness and absurdity of much of the discussion around climate and energy that we see today and policy as well. Um, and and the, the songs hold. I can't drive 
1955. Written by Sammy Hagar in, I want to say, 1984. Uh, it marked the end of the era of fuel economy gains. We were coming off a good decade. Japanese imports had replaced American gas guzzlers, starting with that song, essentially. We've now had, a, what, a 40-year period of something like 0.3 to 0.4% fuel economy gains, missing the promised 3 to 4% gains by 80 to 90% as we've shifted towards SUVs, driving less efficiently, and so forth. And that's true not just in America. It's true in much of the world with the possible exceptions of, of Europe and Japan. Sammy Hagar, 1984, I Can't Drive 55, kicked off this sort of demand boom that we're in. And I think is the number one reason oil demand will not be peaking this decade. Bedlam in Belgium. Is there a better song title for the insanity otherwise known as EU? And as some of you have corrected me, European country climate and energy policy. I mean, come on. The, the song has a lyric that goes something like, uh, law says we can't be here anymore, we're not welcome anymore. That is the attitude many uh, many of these policymakers are taking towards fossil fuels prematurely, and I would say foolishly and inappropriately. And then finally, the ultimate motivation for this playlist, my friend Jason calling our podcast to discuss commodity volatility whiplash. Absolutely fits how I think about the commodity macro environment going forward. I'm calling it super vol as part of the seriousness of my writing uh, in the playlist section. That is whiplash. <laughs>